Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we are running a listener survey to learn more about you, our lovely audience. So please go to survey.11fs.com to share your views. From 11FS, I'm Sarah Koshansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you Metrobank's AI tool and BBVA's AI fund. Transferwise has become the first non-bank to connect the Bank of England's payment systems. And Ross from Friends becomes the CEO of the London Stock Exchange. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, sponsored by Microsoft for the very first time. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Aldgate. I'm Sarah Koshansky and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and my co-host David Breer. How are you doing today, David? Really good. Like bizarrely hot weather in London. What's going on? It's like nice out and people are like happy and t-shirts and shorts. It's weird. It won't last. I know. <laughs> Enough about us. Uh, let's introduce our guests. So joining us today, we have Lucy Wolfenden, Marketing Director at Yolt, and Paul Navarro, Digital Innovation and Transformation Director at TSB. How are you guys doing? Great, thanks. Yeah, very well. Thanks for inviting. Thanks for coming. So let's get on with this week's news. All the stories we talk about today are from our 11FS and Fintech Insider community, fintechinsidernews.com. Check it out for all the latest industry news and sign up to get involved and discuss the stories with everyone on the show and in our community, fintechinsidernews.com. So first up, we have a story from Finextra about Metrobank introducing an AI-powered money management tool. So the tool will be called Insights. It's been developed along with Personetics, which is um, a third-party provider, and it will use predictive and analytics capabilities alongside AI to continuously monitor transaction data and patterns in real time in order to identify relevant trends and events in users' spending habits. These are then translated into tailored prompts and tips to help customers avoid unwanted charges. It's scheduled right now for release in summer 2018. So right now it's scheduled to be released in early summer 2018, but obviously those dates do sometimes move. What do we think of this one? Any thoughts, anybody? Super interesting. Personetics, you know, I've had a bunch of conversations with David over there for, I think, what feels like years now, actually. But And I think we've seen a couple of different organizations kind of use this technology to, to go to market to try and start to make a little bit more sense from some of the, the transactional data and the sort of intent, the the needs that customers really, really have. So it's it's great to start seeing more and more companies doing it. I think particularly for Metro Bank as well. You know, Metro's such a branch-focused organization. You know, that's how mm-hmm. people sort of perceive it. To, to see them starting to move into sort of AI-powered uh, data analysis like this is a great thing. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what the solution actually looks like when it comes out. I think we get here a lot of, you know, certainly when I was back at Business Insider, every other press release was like, powered by AI. And actually, it wasn't really AI, or it was it was sort of AI, and they thought about AI and then taken that bit out. Well, I guess Metro aren't looking for funding, so we probably can think, think <laughs> that they're actually, like, really using AI for something. But like I say, the, the personetic side of things is very much about using the data for nudges. So how can you then outbound to customers to start shaping and changing behavior? which is kind of the way that it should be really being used. Yeah, and I think whether it's AI, machine learning, or just really smart use of data, it's all just that paving that way to that more personalised experience of how you sort of meet your financial needs. Yeah. There's a reason they're called personetics, I guess, at the end end of the day. It's not, not just a clever name. Yeah, I think that, I mean, in general, banking is moving beyond products to really help people with data, no? and using artificial intelligence to 
help people understand better their money and their data is going to be critical. And especially with predictive things, you can probably anticipate personal things to people, no? And nudging them or telling them what's going to happen next week and things like that, no? So the combination of data and AI is really going to help banks provide a much more proactive banking service, no? And, and keep their customers happier. Yeah. Earlier today, I caught up with Alex Park from Metro Bank to find out more about this exciting new product. So I'm here with Alex Park, Metro Bank's Director of Digital, to discuss the exciting news that came out this week that they are launching an AI-powered money management service, which will be called Insights. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Hi, doing? So thank you for joining us. Um, could you start by giving us a little bit of an overview about what this new service is and what it actually does? Sure. So Insights is a, you can think of it as an AI-powered money management tool, which we've developed collaboratively with a third party called Personetics. They're based in Israel. And effectively, what we're trying to do is help customers make more informed decisions when managing their money. So we're rolling out Insights. It's part of our mobile app. It will be available to all uh, retail customers. And you can kind of think about it in two ways. There's a retrospective part of it, which is looking back over the prior month or three months and just giving you a sense of where your money goes. So, you know, categorizing spending. But then the other side of it, and the really interesting bit, I think, is the predictive analytical side of it. So this is analyzing your data in real time, um, picking out trends and patterns, and then trying to prompt you with insights and tips of better ways of managing money. So that's effectively what we're trying to achieve through insights. Could you tell me a little bit more about the the sort of the technology, if you like, behind it, the AI? So we, we hear the term AI used a lot um, on this end of things. Is it what it's doing? Is it sort of rules-based automation? Is there some machine learning at play here? You know, um, how, how, do, how does it work? What type of AI are you using? Yeah, so some of it is machine learning. So effectively, when you're in the app and we pop up insights to your tips, you can rate those insights and based on how you're rating them, you know, how useful you find them, they go back into the system and the, the system, if you like, is self-learning. So it's taking your feedback and then trying to tweak further insight based on what you've said. So there's that element of kind of machine learning. It's, it's learning all the time and trying to tailor itself around precisely what you find valuable. So that's that. That's in part what the, the AI side of it is. And in terms of, sort of how the customers use it then, it sounds when it comes into the app, do they opt in or does everybody sort of, will they get it rolled out? How are you planning to launch this? So absolutely, it, it's opt-in. You know, and we hope that customers will find this really useful and therefore want to, you know, we'll definitely want to opt-in. We'll, we'll do a beta test first with around 1,000 colleagues. We'll get them using it and we'll take some feedback. But yeah, from there on in, you opt-in. And then when you go into the mobile app for phase one, and we'll have a, some notifications. So if we've generated some insights for you, you know, you'll see a little red circle with some numbers in around how many insights there are. And you can go in and look at those insights, as well as you can just interact more generally with the, you know, categorization of spending and drill down into that. Over time, we'll then move into push notifications. So much more proactively letting customers know you may need to act now or there's something more pressing to do. And that's all part of, I think, this broader plan we have for insights where we're going to roll it out possibly to other parts of the business or the customer groups, as well as just iterate and build or generate different insights in there over time. So you can think of um, what we're doing right now as a, as a phase one, actually, where we're going to get it out there. And in true Metro Star, we definitely want to get some feedback from customers and see how it's working out for them. So we'll probably do some, you know, get some customers in and do further research with those guys. And then, you know, we'll go from there and see where we take it. 
And uh, presumably the, the long-term aim here is to take advantage of open banking and, and, and bring, you know, possibly insights from other accounts? Or, or is that too much? You, you can't reveal that stage in, um, in the planning yet? Yeah, so that's absolutely possible. So I think insights, as all, I think, database tools, they, they all work best when there's more data to work on, quite frankly. So, you know, insights right now will work best with your current account, but also if you've got, you know, other Metro accounts, it will, you can use those accounts to drive the insights. Yes, as you know, you think about the world of open banking and account aggregation. Absolutely, we would look to, you know, leverage insights across those um, different accounts to give you a bigger picture. And I think, you know, you know, beyond that, I think there are other data sets out there which, you know, potentially the bank could ingest to, you know, drive even greater insights. So off the top of my head, something like pensions integration could be interesting in terms of helping people manage, you know, the long-term future. So I think that's why we're kind of, you know, tremendously excited about it because, you know, we've got this talk, it's coming shortly, it will be out there in customers' hands and we'll take feedback. But we're very much looking at this as a tool which we can really iterate upon and, and develop and do something quite different with. And I think the thing with Metro Bank is, and part of the reason we've got to where we are is we we, you know, we're a young bank. We have this really clean tech stack at the back end, you know, using best in class technologies. And that really helps. You know, all your data is in one place. And then on top of that, you know, we've got a ways of working, which is very agile. And that's why it's actually worked so well, I think, with Personetics, because, you know, they're a young company in Israel, you know, best in class tech, agile ways of working. Bringing those two things together, they've combined very well. And we've been able to roll out a great product. So that's kind of the blueprint that's worked well for us. And I think, you know, that's what we'll use going forward to get to some of these other, you know, features and services, the products as as time goes on. Great. Well, that's a really comprehensive overview. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. And um, we look forward to to seeing the product go live and and, and seeing, you know, all those different iterations um, come to light. Me too. Thank, Thank you very much. Great to hear from Alex Park and to learn more about that insights tool. So staying with AI, our second story today is also from Finextra. Um, The story is that BBVA, the the Spanish banking giant, has invested $50 million in a Chinese AI-focused fund. So BBVA is pumping $50 million into this uh, $500 million fund. Um, It's focused on artificial uh, intelligence you know, uh, startups. Um, the fund's going to invest in both Chinese and US companies, which is really interesting. But a lot of banks, as we talked about, are, are using AI. What I think is interesting um, to me here is that BBVA, instead of putting money into, you know, setting up their own fund and investing in AI startups themselves, have given the money to a Chinese fund to invest sort of almost, as it were, on their behalf. Um, I think that's a really interesting strategy. $500 million, though, like... How hard is this stuff? Do you know what I mean? Like the level of investment that's going into this space is just ridiculous, isn't it? You know, we're and I guess it, it is interesting that this almost like a consortium esque kind of investment mm-hmm. approach that that makes a lot of sense. But I think when people say AI, I think they mean such broad kind of spread of like different types of technologies that this could be anything from like slightly making my uh, car slightly more intelligent to completely replacing my job with a robot. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of this. But again, the amount of money going into this is just obscene really i thought one of the um, interesting facts was that they said that 83 percent of banks have evaluated ai but then it also said that 83 percent of banks weren't entirely sure how they were going to use ai for a good business case and i thought that was quite telling in um it's, it's a thing <laughs> we need a thing get the thing oh god what do we do with the thing yeah i think there are two things here one is probably and, and you've probably been many times in asia no but asia is going to become in a few years the next silicon valley potentially no so probably having a leg there for BBVA is relevant no, in terms of understanding what's going on and probably not having a permanent team there. 
a way to enter that market in terms of venture capital. It's partnering with someone locally. On the other side, I mean, AI is very broad in terms of what can solve, no? And probably right now, we are seeing the first wave of AI-powered services for customers, but AI is going to be everywhere in cars, TVs, and everywhere supporting people to do other things. No? And we can see that happening with Amazon Alexa and those things, that it's everything. It's the brain in the cloud powering things. Yeah, I think it's definitely that continuing, as you say, that trend of no longer just looking to Silicon Valley and San Francisco for you know innovation, but um, you know China's kind of just streaking ahead when it comes to this stuff. And, and you know, they'd be foolish not to look to China, certainly when it comes to AI. And I think that the decision to go with a partner, as you said, is very clever because that Chinese fund will have access to companies and it will be able to open doors that I just think BBVA wouldn't be able to do on their own in China. I think the way the Chinese market is, you kind of need somebody who has that insider knowledge to help you. Um, it does say that this Chinese fund have previously invested in six startups that have gone on to become unicorns. Like that's an incredible track record for a, for a fund. So um in terms of consumer, choice. I mean, consumers in China are also very tech-driven, no? so probably it's also a good market to start testing some of these technologies and, say, and then see how to scale to other geographies. Yeah, I kind of think, though, with, you know, with China, almost numbers start to become reasonably irrelevant, don't they? Because actually, like, the, you know, tens of millions of people on a test and, you know, a billion-dollar company out there off the back of being able to justify it from a hundred million people you know like the just the scale of everything is is kind of slightly out of kilter for what we am so we we need some sort of translation of what a unicorn in silicon valley actually means when you get it out into china i think so well funny you should say that staying with the focus on china our next story is an explainer of the meteoric rise of ant financial and their recent rumored valuation so this is a piece from reuters actually designed to explain what ant financial is to a a western uh, audience you know for those who don't know we talk about it quite a lot but ant financial is is one of china's biggest fintechs if you like they do just about everything been rumoured for quite a long time that they're going to list. And obviously, ahead of a listing, you get a valuation. And some analysts have sort of crunched the numbers based on, you know, their net operating profit, you know, taking tax and all those clever things that analysts do that I've never quite understood and come up with a number of $155 billion valuation for one company. Wow. I mean, talking about size and scale, uh, David. He did well, didn't he? you got, you got to be impressed given... Because this, this company hasn't been around for very long at all, has it? What, what is it, like 20 years tops? Yeah, I, I don't know off the top of my head. So to, to have scaled to $150 billion valuation in that period of time is just amazing, really. So I kind of wonder, wonder what's next for them, though. Like, you, you kind of think the, the sort of march with everything that we... And we've had representatives for Alipay on here a number of times. And, you know, while they, they continually sort of say that, you know, really it, the expansion into Europe is predominantly to allow <coughs> Chinese travelers to, to be able to kind of continue to use the same types of things they can at home... I'm starting to just get a bit uncomfortable really about that as the narrative for, you know, real world domination. Cue evil laugh. Yeah, I mean, I guess the other side you can take here is that it is a valuation done by some analysts and explained they haven't got it yet. Um, and there was a really interesting piece in the FT this week which talked about how Ant Financial is kind of in a weird position right now. There are some legal questions around it in China and abroad. So that's based on the fact that historically Yahoo had a big stake in it. And then the Chinese government said, oh, you can't have foreign direct investment. And then Ant Financial you know, came back and went the other way. Ant Financial tried to buy a company in America. And America said, well, we don't want your money 
money over here either. So they're, they're struggling to find a place for themselves a bit. But surely then Europe is middle ground, right? You know, you've got yeah. one giant in the US and one giant in China kind of, you know, slowly consuming the rest of the world when it comes to these types of, you know, utility services like payments, really. Yeah, I think that is what it's relevant about these uh, players is that they are becoming big conglomerates now. So they are probably not anymore only a fintech business. So and they are more a platform business that's being has been able to do many things. Like we compare this with WeChat or Alibaba or is is the front facing platform for people to do everything, no? And, and probably this is why the valuation is responding to that rather than being only a financial business. Although, you know, as we talk about all the time, that model works really well in China, whether it works outside of China where everybody already has financial services, whether they want to then have... Because somebody was saying the other day in the office that you can go out to China and you can have your mobile phone and a phone charger and that's all you need if you've got the Tencent app, you know, if you start using WeChat Pay. Because you can do everything. You can order a cab, you can pay for your dinner, you can book a doctor's appointment. It's insane. It's a good way to live. But, you know, we were uh, were in Hong Kong last week and that makes sense when you start looking at you know the sizes of property and everything that's out there like most people don't have laptops so like being in a situation where you're doing everything via your mobile phone makes you know complete sense yeah we have seen this also happening in other geographies in latin america it's happening in mexico for example people are jumping directly to mobile phones for everything no so there are some economies where those things really make sense. Where it would really work. Yeah, well, we had your very own Chris Skinner at an, an Think Tank event last month, and he came up with this amazing stat that 97% of transactions in Zimbabwe are done through mobile. And that's just mind-blowing if you think about that compared to what it is in the UK and how actually some of the emerging markets are just leapfrogging Western economies in this adoption of mobile and actually because they don't have to work with the structure they already have. They can just start from scratch and in that way they're doing that without bank account no legacy systems you can jump straight to fixing the problem can't you which is which is smart and we've seen that in various different places i guess haven't we in um you know india the demonetization side of things really sort of pushed dramatically mobile payment systems because people really had no other alternative but to sort of get on board if it's don't buy something or use your mobile then people will give it a go you know it's the same similar thing actually in eastern europe as well i mean you look at the the adoption of mobile technology in places like poland and it just it outshines western europe absolutely because as you say i mean but is the dream like those of us who work in this arena would really love to not have to deal with legacy systems unfortunately it is rather much our cross to bear what would we talk about I i don't know what would we do just the idea that all you have to take out is your mobile phone and nothing else. Mm. I think I'm paranoid about that, though. Like, you know, despite having a new iPhone, the battery life is pretty pretty abysmal at the best of times type thing. So, you know, the full Mac has to be, you know, there needs to be a good degradation of service, doesn't there? You know, and, and arguably in most instances for us, contactless payments work as good as mobile payments here. You know, it's the reason I almost never use Apple Pay is, well, my, you know, my Monzo card works really, really well and I can tap that and it's easy and it works right i think that's a great example though of where it's taken years to actually get that adoption Mm. i think contactless payment technology was around about 15 years ago but it's only in the last few years that you've actually seen a a mass market because it's taken that time to get people as well as the retailers but also trusting consumers to understand why it's so useful yeah but at the same time i think that payments will become much more invisible no so you can see that in the uber experience no where the 
payment element disappears from the journey, no, and it's just embedded there. You, you don't care how you pay. You just you don't actually want to pay, do you? It's this idea that it's give it's, me the thing. Yeah, I just want a thing. I want to get home. I want to get on the tube. I want to have a drink. I don't actually want to pay. So moving back to the UK, which we just kind of already started to touch upon there. The next story um, is from City AM, and it's about Lloyd's Banking Group cutting even more jobs. On this occasion, they're cutting three hundred and five jobs and closing forty nine branches across the UK. This is kind of an ongoing program from Lloyd's. This isn't kind of a new announcement. This is the next step in their attempt to cut down by, they're going to try and cut costs by £8 billion by 2020. And at the same time, it's not it's not all bad news. At the same time, they're, they're spending more on other services. So on training and on, on you know, um, digitization. Digitalization? Digitization? I never know which is the British version of that. I think they're actually different things. Oh, no. Yeah, there's like, uh, we'll go into the definitions later, but there's there's definitely three of them. Uh, and they they do mean slightly different things. I just thought they meant they were putting more digital technology in the back end. Well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do a glossary. That's yeah. what's coming. We'll put it in the show notes. Laura will sort that out, I'm sure. She's not looking at... Oh, she's going to do that. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the interesting thing here as well is, you know, this is a story we've been hearing about a lot. What's interesting here is that Lloyds did actually make a special effort to say that they're going to replace those branches. Or not replace those branches, but replace the provision of those services with increased mobile branches. It turns out that not everyone knows what a mobile branch is. It's literally a lorry that drives into a car park and it will give you all the services of a bank and they tend to drive around. This is where we bring in mums, by the way. This is where mums come in. Drive around in small Welsh villages and pull up in a car park and everybody can go and do what they need to do, whether it's take up money, deposit. See, I, I think uh, the lot of the narrative around this one is super negative and obviously you don't want 305 people to be losing their jobs, but I kind of feel like this is just like part and parcel of the movement in this. This is evolution in banking and, and actually arguably these branches have probably been artificial officially kept open for such a long period of time that you know now that they're facing into it and closing these things down and they do stay in here it's because of the you know the less footfall to to them and increasingly people using digital services so uh, you know while i like say super sad 305 people have lost their jobs then it just feels like it's where they should be going i do feel i still come back to what is wrong if you have to spend three billion over the next three years to invest in digital transformation there that is probably way more concerning to me than the um the branch closures really yeah i think the positive bit is as you say it's about taking the banking to the consumer if you want to do it on your mobile if you want to do it on digital it's going to be there but for those that aren't on the internet or aren't comfortable using your mobile they're going to actually take the banking to you yeah. and those people probably are the people that aren't able to go to the high street and queue up for half an hour you yeah. know so i think actually it's a really positive story about listening to consumers and taking it to them yeah i mean i think that that is key this this um the one thing you know we always need to talk about when we get, sit here and go but we use everything online why does it matter it's those people who as you say can't get to a branch or don't have the internet because there are still people you know we live in london we live in this little bubble where everybody has the internet but there are plenty of people who don't have access to it well and, and it's increasingly the the times where the you know like shit hits the fan moments you know like if something goes really really wrong you still want to have to you know still want to talk to somebody and that that could be if you're out on the street and you've been mugged and you need a card then going into a branch is the place right yeah. but i you know i think increasingly those use cases are getting smaller and smaller and smaller but uh, and arguably you know, humans don't just have to be in buildings to be able to be talked to, right? My thinking was there. No? I mean, our vision in TSV is more that this is a combination of both human and digital, no? And, and there's always a moment for self-serving, but there's always a moment where you need a human helping you. And especially when you think about SME banking and other type of relationships, you will always need conversation with someone, especially if you have to grow your business and things like that. 
But the thing is how you can bring people to the customer rather than bringing the customer yeah. to you, no? and how digital can help you really extend your arms and yeah. bring your people close to the customer. And digital will enable those people who go out in those vans, they can take an iPad with them and they can go to somebody's home and help them if they need be, or, or, or they can you know, do a mortgage application from an iPad in a van in a supermarket car park. That's still going to be cheaper than running a branch, but you, as you say, are giving the customer what they want, where they I want I like to. the example of NHS here in UK. No? So when you see that phone with the screen when the doctor is with you at home, yeah. so it's similar with banking. No? So how you bring the relationship manager mm-hmm. to the customer, because at the end of the day, you have always moments in your life that you need that support and talking with someone and get that reassurance that you are doing the right thing. There's so many overlaps between, you know, similes between health and financial services in terms of, you know, how people want to communicate, yeah. you know, some embarrassment potentially depending on what's wrong with your financial life or your health of some description um so like being able to kind of talk to somebody and have that interaction and it not be personable i think in some instances that's actually a really interesting thing you know the amount of people who get into debt who want to talk to somebody but feel you know threatened by a you know a lovely suited gentleman on the other side of the table type thing then you know that that um different ways of communicating will work really really well i think yeah, and as, and as we said, you know, it, it's about doing both at the same time. You can do digital, but you can also maintain those relationships. And as we said, you not necessarily have to spend £3 billion to do it. <laughs> Moving on from incumbents to fintechs, the next story is from Business Insider. It's about a company, well, a fund called Dawn Capital backing UK fintech. Dawn Capital are a UK venture capital investor, um, which has raised $235 million or £165 million for its third fund. Um, they already invested in Izettle and Wonga, so they, they kind of have some... Um, um, they have a reputation. Well, they have two different sorts of reputation there, actually, with those two different companies. Um, but the the really interesting thing here is that the fund um, will be split between European companies and UK companies, and that the European Investment Fund has put money into uh, into Dawn Capital. Now, that's important here in the UK because the European Investment Fund pulled out of the UK after Brexit. So this is a way for that money to be channeled back into UK companies. So I think, generally speaking, this is a positive story for for both you know UK fintech and also European fintech more broadly. Lucy, did you have a... My only thought really was perhaps Next Venture might be about helping people stay out of debt in the first place rather than needing to go to a payday loan. um... Should should we we do a quick... For those who don't know what Wonga is, I don't know whether... I mean, this is an interesting thing. We didn't realise they were still around. They are still around. They they have um, reformed themselves. They've pulled up their socks and uh, after the the British uh, Financial Conduct Authority went after them. But basically what they are is a payday lender. So they, they will give you money when you need it at a very high interest rate. I think they're still issuing quite a lot of loans as well, actually, aren't they, out, out there? I think they're, you know, they serve people who other markets pro- possibly wouldn't be. Therefore, yeah. I still think there's a market for kind of what they're selling, essentially. Um, I think the, the interesting thing on as well is that they, they've raised money here from EIF, so the European Investment Fund, yeah. which I think we were all sort of presuming those guys had not touched anything in the UK. Well, that's given- what I'm saying. They, they pulled out. This is really interesting that they've come back into a UK company that is investing in the UK company. And those guys have not been shy of kind of putting a lot of money in, hasn't they? So EIF have put in billions, haven't they, in terms of various different organizations so the fact that they're investing in this fund and you know i guess diversifying into the uk again is well a good sign for london and a good good sign for the uk yeah i think there is a i mean a confirmation that london especially and uk in general is still a big hub 
in terms of growth for fintech companies. No? And there's a, an element of trust here, no? if it's bucketed with money. No? Yeah. And for us, I mean, we look at this from our innovation perspective, where we see that being here is also a good opportunity for us, not only locally in our business in UK, but globally to support our businesses abroad investing here. No? Yeah, I mean, we as Yelp chose to launch in the UK because it is a right fintech audience and you want you need a community of fintech um for people that understand understand why it's useful and why it's not and building that trust around it to be able to launch a a successful brand i think yeah i think think what we've seen um and and, you know what what we've all touched on today is that nothing has replaced london yet like for despite you know the the uncertainty the political uncertainty that continues to rumble on and people like you know the eif initially going oh no let's not do that they've come back and gone actually well there's nowhere else to do it so we'll we'll come back and but you know we'll keep going whilst the business is still here and i don't think we say this all the time but london's not going to the fintech industry in london is not going to suddenly disappear in a puff of smoke it's not going to disappear tomorrow and if we have this weather that we have this week it's going to grow yeah. <laughs> if we have we keep having this weather we should point out it's 29 degrees outside um then all the people who are currently living in madrid will come here <laughs> and it'll be great that sounds great as, as a like a recruitment policy if we could somehow turn up the, the temperature <laughs> yeah um like humblest brag moment ever type thing but we had the the opportunity to talk to the deputy mayor of london this this week and he was incredibly bullish about the the sort of positioning of london the continual sort of strength and actually what can we do to sort of extend that lead when when it comes to you know the opportunities that we're giving for talent to come outside of the uk to here but equally how do we you know foster the the types of positioning to to allow us to take some of the companies that are doing really exciting things here and 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 take that to other countries as well so i think that interview will be out on the 27th so by all means check that out brilliant well we're going to take a quick break we'll be back very shortly we wanted to let you know that if you love this show how about seeing it live we're going to be at money 2020 europe in amsterdam this june and we're bringing fintech insider live with us We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email, hello at 11FS.com. So now on with the show. So our next story today um, is brought to you by AltFi. It's a story that Revolut, the the fintech that wants to do everything, um, has launched a product called Vaults, uh, which is similar to some of the other products out there from the likes of Monzo and Moneybox. And basically, when you make a purchase, say that purchase is £5.95, um, it will round up the purchase as it will deduct sort of £6 from your balance and the extra £5 will go into a, a sort of a savings jar or a pot. It'll be put aside for you, basically. This is interesting because, as I said, a lot of other people have this already. So are we reaching the point where this kind of feature is no longer differentiating and now it's like a, a, a need to have, a must have feature? I think I've moaned about this a few times before, but like this this has been around forever. Like Lloyd's did this in 2004, 2005, you know, like save the change has been a thing for a long time. So I think it, I think it's interesting to start seeing so many of the fintechs kind of moving to this type of, you know, 
not just from a transactional side of things, but moving very much into saving. You know, I know it's super, super micro saving, but, you know, starting those habits is super interesting. I saw um, Chad kind of tweeting about the fact that he'd saved another 6p earlier on, which is uh, which is wonderful. It might take him a long time to get to that uh, that objective 6p at a time. But, uh, you know, every little counts, right? It's interesting as a, as a usage, as a, as a tool to drive usage, because I have the same similar things set up on my Monzo card. And in about six weeks, I've saved 50 quid because... I use that card for everything, and I actually, um, I actually have that card attached to my Android Pay, which I use because I, I. This is a conversation we've had before, but like I don't use my contactless card. My contactless card is in my purse. My purse is in my bag, which is on my back. So when I need to do something quickly, my phone comes out of my pocket rather than my card. Um, but those two things combined, literally every every thing I buy in a day, every you know every pound I spend is on that card, and it, it racks up pretty quick. What I'd really like to see is somebody paying me interest on it. Money box. <laughs> um, I think it's just simple behavior economics. So isn't it so it's about how do you actually start people saving and to say to someone start an ISA is a really big goal to go from nothing to starting putting a couple of thousand pounds in but if you actually say okay that's spare change that you'd usually lose because you take out your pocket and not do anything with it suddenly starts to become it starts to start those little step changes and you're suddenly saving as you say 50 pounds and that can then multiply and I think the saving thing is important because with with money box what they do is they invest those tiny amounts and I I'm I'm still quite Questioning this model, I don't necessarily. I think saving that five pence is absolutely great behaviour because it adds up. I think investing that little five pence is probably a bit of a reach. Yeah, I think as David was saying, probably this was launched years ago. Also, I remember Bank of America with the keep the change, and but probably what is changing now is that technology is allowing to do things again invisible, no, and doing these small changes in behaviour on things you do every day, no, and and probably for us the way to do these type of things is doing a small experiments and testing with people because there are many of these small features that you can build for people to help them manage their money. No? It could be the safe to spend or it could be the micro savings or it could be things like this that start changing behavior of people without them having to learn so much how to do it. Yeah, and of course, of course it's, I think the point is as well, it's much easier for Revolut to try it and if it doesn't work, turn it off than it is for you as TSB to do that. I think anecdotally, you know, I think this is really working from, you know, the conversations we've had lots of people are starting to use this type of functionality in Revolut and, uh, you know, and like say some of these other organizations as well. And I, and I think it's, you know, the thing I love about Revolut is just their relentless drive for, like you say, sort of testing and trying stuff. You know, it's amazing how many things that they are bringing to market and continually sort of pushing out there. I, I, what's next, really? Yeah, and I think, so. I was just going to say, so I don't think, um, it might not be brand new and it might not be unique, but what they're doing really well is actually just keeping adding and listening to people. So what they were saying is that thousands, they came out and said thousands of people in our community asked for this, so we wanted to give it back. And that 30,000 people actually asked for early access. With the fintech, that's... That's huge numbers. And I think that's where people are winning. They might have, all the different fintechs might have started from different areas. But if you keep listening, keep adding everything on, you give people those reasons to keep coming back every day. It's going to be interesting, isn't it, that, you know, the fintech starts so dramatically different at the beginning, yeah. but slowly we're adding lending and savings. And like, at what point are fintechs just recreating universal banking models by adding all of the, like, and, and arguably, 
banks didn't start doing all of these things in one go. You know, they started from a place with one thing that they did really, really well. You know, that was their beachhead into that market. And now they're doing all of these different products as well. So, you know, are we seeing old models being recreated here just with slightly better interfaces? Or is this is this really sort of transformational in the way that we'd want to see it? I think the interface is important for a tool like this, because as you said, it's been around for a very long time, but people weren't using it. What you can do now is that brilliant thing that you can do on Revolut and Monzo and all of these things, and you can see it instantly. Instantly it's there. Instantly you can see how much you've saved. You can just pull out of your pocket and see how much have I saved right now. So rather than, you know, 2014, yeah, I'm sure you could have gone onto your online banking and seen how much you had saved, but it's not that immediate reward. And if you're going to transform behavior, you need to, <laughs> I'm sorry, but you need instant gratification. Like, it's, that's kind of how it works. Yeah. So um, I think the point being that, you know, yes, the actual underlying model is not that new, but the technology is enabling old things that things that were tried before and didn't work to work this time around and I, that is interesting to me i think that um in general is how banking is moving from products to these micro experiences no and, and what are those relevant micro experiences for customers no and how to use uh, behavioral economics and design to really understand what are those small things that will change the life of many people no so the example of google nudging you that have you have to leave your office because you will arrive late somewhere because they know about the traffic and things like this is these are small things that really help people change their life and especially at the bigger scale no because these small problems are happening to many people at the same time no? isn't it terrifying how accurate those things actually are as well you know the, the google prompts yeah. like uh, have you have you had those set I, I turn them off because they annoy me but <laughs> i've seen them i know what they are but it, it knows where i want to go you know it's like it's quite terrifying but I, I don't if you haven't turned the tracking off you can now go go into google maps and actually it will show you everywhere you've been in the last like eight yeah. days the routes that you took and which is just terrifying isn't it and the way it learns is amazing no because they look probably how much time you spend somewhere and by then by with that information they know that there is your home because it's where you spend uh, every night uh, many hours no so how they can learn about yeah. the that's data. where i confuse it i uh, i end up spending a lot of time in various <laughs> yeah, different places yeah. with stuff so uh, sorry mrs Breer. <laughs> the interesting thing for me as well with that just that learning behavior is that i walk really quickly and when google maps first started telling you how long it would take you to walk somewhere i walk everywhere and i walk quickly i'd be like take 10 minutes off it's not going to take me that but now it's learned how quickly i walk and it gives me a very accurate estimation of how long it's going to that take is me. a power because it's yeah. an experience for you and only for you and it's the core of the data debate isn't it it's how can we use data to be most relevant to help your life so that's learned that you want more quickly so you actually know when you're going to get somewhere versus having to start thinking that you're going to be late it can send you notifications saying just enjoy it sarah like <laughs> It's a lovely day. Stroll. Yeah, just in, just walk down the Thames. It'd be nice. I can't walk slowly. I like, and I hate people who walk slowly. That's a whole other conversation. Let's move on. So Revolut recently said that it believes a cashless society is imminent. However, uh, that leads us neatly into our next story, which says that cash is in fact increasing, not decreasing. Um, so this is a story from the Financial Times, which says that demand for cash is going up uh, rather than down in most countries. The report surveyed 47 countries um, with 75% of the world's population and 90% of its GDP. So that's a pretty representative sample um, and it found that demand for cash is increasing both in absolute terms and as a percentage of GDP just two countries are identified that have seen significant falls in cash payments one is South Korea where cash use is 14% and where the government has a coin reduction policy in place and Sweden where cash use is at 20% so we actually discussed this last week's After Dark if you haven't listened you must go back and listen to it now we discussed Sweden's pushback against cashlessness in fact after fears of all the payments so the, the fear they had in Sweden is that they don't want all the payments controlled by the banks 
um, they don't they want the central bank to be involved and you need cash for that. It's interesting. I don't know if anybody else has looked at this. If you look at the reasons that people want to use cash and it's things like this is the interesting thing about legal tender, but beyond that convenience, anonymity, availability and this safe harbor thing. I'm not sure. I'm slightly surprised that that's pushing cash used to increase. Um, so we're doing weirder stuff to become anonymous more is that the general trend is it but uh, this is an interesting one isn't it i think in, in globally there's going to be so many different reasons why people will or won't use Absolutely. more or less cash isn't there so i think aggregating those things up to a global level might sort of slightly muddy the waters in terms of because I, I in the uk in fact 99 percent of the places that i travel to i never need to have cash of any description we did last week in hong kong because no taxi driver in hong kong takes anything other than cash which is an interesting thing that we didn't know until we were in one which was fun but no definitely sort of you know my my need for physical cash has just completely gone away is it more representative of a geopolitical situation than than actually i think it's probably more a micro thing than a micro thing no? but especially in UK, for example you have more payments with card and cash no and and if you Looking at the behavior of people, this is changing every day, you know? So. To be fair, G4S have got a few examples of getting things a little bit wrong lately, haven't they? So Yeah, G- G4S did the survey. I mean, I think it's interesting if you look at, you know, just to go back to that point you were saying about behavior, like if you're somewhere like Venezuela where you never know what payment is going to be valid from one day to the next and you never know what the value of that payment is going to be, then maybe having large wads of cash is actually increasing and in places like that. In a different currency, probably. Like well, people generally will hold dollars or something to... That's increasing the desire for cash. It's not Venezuelan cash. It's increasing desire for dollars. So all of a sudden the American mint is going, oh my God, we have to print, you know hundreds more bills but not because they're being used here because they're being used somewhere else export money who'd have thought <laughs> there's an idea philip hammond no, i was going to say that at the same time what we we're commenting before about these big digital retailers i mean they are growing every day so and there are many payments happening in platforms like amazon or alibaba that are digital only so this will keep growing and growing yeah though interestingly um, a lot of those platforms are looking at ways to enable people to pay by cash so if you look at Amazon they have this system whereby if you don't have a bank account you can set up an account online and then you go to what's effectively we call a post office or a corner shop hand your cash over to the person in the corner shop and then they will load your account that's more to attract the unbanked though but the unbanked use cash so it's kind of this like we can talk about decreasing cash usage all we like but there's still going to be that segment who who need the cash and these guys are trying to facilitate that cash usage and probably is to see how they can capture this pocket money for oh. online spending no because there's always pocket money everywhere that you can capture to start buying things digital, you know. Did you, did you, I don't know if you heard our After Dark, what we were talking about Amazon's desire to go after children's money and children's data last week. It was quite creepy, but your point is absolutely valid. It does sound terrifying. I haven't quite listened to it yet, <laughs> so I will go listen to that now. It's great. It's about five minutes of me trying not to sound creepy. Okay. <laughs> so speaking of payments and moving from cash payments to electronic payments, our next story is from Quartz, um, although it was very widely reported. TransferWise has become the first non-bank to connect the Bank of England's payments payment systems. So just to give a little bit of context on this one, because this is important so that you can see just how how seminal this, this, this moment is. After five years of discussions, TransferWise is now the first ever non-bank to get access to the Bank of England's payment systems. So that means that they can settle in real time. They have access to what's called the real-time gross settlement system. So rather than waiting for a banking partner to settle for them, they have control. So prior to this, only 48 institutions, which were banks, had settlements accounts at the Bank of England. 
everybody else had to go through one of four agent banks. What that meant for everybody else was that not only did they have to pay these agent banks to handle their transactions for them, but they also didn't have control over the entire user experience because if the agent bank was too slow to do something or it fell over, then their customers suffered as a result. So this is this is a really, really big thing. Um, I think if, I'm sure everybody agrees, but... I mean, it's... Why we're here is fintechs, right? It's to take the pain out of people's finances and to make it easier. Why should someone wait three days to clear a check It should or a payment? It should just be instantaneous and that instant gratification we talked about earlier. <laughs> but come on, you have to give them a price of sheer determination. You know, five years. Most fintechs haven't been around for five years. So to have been trying to get this through for five years is definitely worthy of them. Um, some sort of celebration yeah without doubt i bet they you know sigh of relief after five years of effort to make this happen but you know seeing fintech players becoming part of the uh you know mainstream pipes in banking you know that is a really big change isn't it in terms of actually what we're seeing so uh transferwise pretty you know they they came out very heavily with lots of sort of bravado and marketing i remember you know seeing them kind of sort of doing things outside of uh, the royal exchange and bank and you know making a real big sort of noise at the beginning but they're pretty quietly just going about their business now and getting shit done which is pretty pretty impressive you know yeah i mean for me the interesting thing here or the important thing here as well as this is the bank of england like mark carney has put his money where his mouth is so last year he said we're gonna do it i mean obviously he wouldn't have said we were gonna do it if he didn't know it was gonna happen but but the point being that they did do it and they have done it and they've opened it up and, and then that just opens the floodgates for everybody else to follow. I mean, as you say, TransferWise have been have been incredibly creative in how they've gone about with these technical integrations before, but the fact that they can be held up there as kind of the poster child for it will, I think, encourage huge numbers of other companies to follow in their tracks. How much do you think this will put the wind up the f- other four Asian banks that now have actually got to, you know, really sort of step up to the plate to, to you know, be a bit more innovative about how they're approaching this process. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't know how much of the agent bank's business is done by these third, you know, is to do with these third party settlements, I imagine quite a lot. I mean, the Bank of England has done it for the same reason the FCA does an awful lot of things. It wants more competition. And the Bank of England basically said to the big banks, right, you're not doing enough to kind of spur um, risk reducing behaviour. You haven't done it. So we're going to let other people have a go. So kind of, I think it's on the banks, like on your own heads, be it. Like you had the opportunity to do this. You had the opportunity to do what we asked you to do and you didn't so bad luck <laughs> so here's transfer wise yeah. <laughs> I mean, for, for us this is good news because i mean as you know tsb is a challenger and we are we want to bring more competition so seeing the regulator and bank of england really opening up the pipes is also an opportunity for us to compete against the big five no so all these type of things i mean the thing is it's probably slower than we would like but the thing at the same time is that it's demonstrating that Banking will change for sure in the coming years because getting access to the pipes for competitors like TransferWise or other banks like us is really allowing competition to happen. No? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, in general, all the banking infrastructure will become much more open no? with open banking, with things like this is really allowing people to do things in the interface, that is where the value is for the customer. No? And it sort of forces innovation as well, because if you've only got four banks, or is it we have sort of a vocaling as well, if you only have like five banks who own it and control it, what possible motivation do they have to try and do things differently? If the Bank of England, as I said, you know, comes in and says, you're going to have to do it differently or are they going to steal your lunch? It kind of ups that, it accelerates it. Yeah, and, and then, I mean, I think that payments are the blood of banking. No? So allowing this to happen faster is allowing banking also to work better for the customer, No, because at the end of the day, it doesn't make so much sense that to do a payment to a friend 
that is living somewhere else, they have to wait for three days. No, so all the things that are speeding up payments is is simplifying banking and making it easier. No, I love the you know the the stats in here about the scale of usage of Transferwise right now is just amazing as well. Really, like it's the fact that they've got to uh, what is it more than one point five billion is being transferred every month now, which is amazing. You know, like statistically, that is just a you know I know still if you look in comparison to something like a Western Union, they're probably very small single digit percentages in comparison to like huge players in in global transfers. But you know, still the fact that that amount of money is being transferred by these people so consistently is huge yeah i mean and, and i was um i was speaking to a group of students actually yesterday at imperial college and i was trying to get them examples of, of successful fintechs and transferwise is one that we use in a couple of ways one is because you know as you said when they first as you said Dave, when they first came out they were doing all this kind of great marketing and they had this you know interesting peer-to-peer business model neither of those things really worked for them so they went okay, we'll do it differently and we'll do it this way. And they had the guts to change that model and they had the guts to keep going. And now you look at the scale of them and you think, yeah, that's a real success story. And you have more people coming here. Now you have a square cash, you have more people getting here. No? And this links with the previous news about cashless society, you know, because these platforms are capturing many payments that they are doing with are done with cash between people, no? And, and global society as well. Like, it becomes more and more important that you can send money to people in other countries. I mean, my sister lives in Australia, and she emailed me earlier and was like, how do I send money to a Dutch and a Kiwi bank account from Australia with a British bank account? And I was like, wow, I know I work in fintech, but that's going to take me a while. <laughs> but the point is that people want that, that, as you say, giving people what they want and the behaviours and, and, you It's know, convenience at the end of the day, yeah. so it's just one click and you move money so mm. so moving on from the bank of england to the london stock exchange via central park our next story this afternoon comes from bbc news although it is slightly less serious than that source may give you to believe the one where ross got mistaken for a banker now anybody who watched friends um years and years ago or, or indeed today would understand this but basically a gentleman called david schwimmer was announced as the new ceo of the london stock exchange and people Twitter, um, immediately assumed it was the actor who played Ross Geller in Friends. Memes ensued, hilarity ensued. David Schwimmer, by the way, the non-actor, is, is a very credible appointment. The London Stock Exchange, he spent 20 years at Goldman Sachs. That doesn't seem to matter, does but it? No, it's, it doesn't uh... seem to matter. I mean, David, you were telling us a hilarious anecdote about your wife trying to explain this to you. And... Yeah, bizarrely, I got home on Sunday and we were driving along and Sarah, my wife, tried to describe to me how... David Schwimmer from Friends had been appointed to that thing like Wall Street in America was ha- literally how she put it to me, which is interesting. <laughs> so after like a little bit of like, what is what do you mean? She was literally showing me a thing on the BBC where David Schwimmer and a picture from of Ross from Friends had appo- been appointed to LSE as the uh, the CEO, which was very confusing. Like I literally pulled over to read the thing. So, uh, but uh, much to my wife's sort of um, sadness, really, it's it's not. Ross from Friends. It's actually some dude who's, like you say, very credible at getting the job. So, well, yeah, the cynic in me does think that they were. It was a great PR story to move away from all the politics that had happened before his announcement. But um, what I want to know is, like, has David Schwimmer on Twitter, and I'm furiously trying to look this up now. Has he somehow responded to this? Because, like, if he hasn't got involved in this, like, I mean, David Schwimmer from Friends, mm. he's missing a whole like PR opportunity because yeah. that guy can't have much going on right now, can he? Really, I, I believe he lives in the UK. Like, I feel like I don't feel like I don't want to explain how I know this. I feel like there's an awful lot of 
pub quizage going on in the back of my brain, but I think he was trying to be a film director and he moved to the UK. And I think if he, and, which, you know, doubly means he should absolutely be in on the act if he's based in London. Well, but I think that Netflix is taking back uh, Friends and there's many people viewing Friends again. No? So it's becoming uh, yeah, I'm huge. I'm not sure he needs to work. I think the guy who's running the London Stock Exchange probably needs to work more than <laughs> David Schumer, who played Ross Geller. Very true. Well, if we have either of the David Trimmers on, then we will definitely be uh, sort of quizzing them about each other. <laughs> yes. Please make note of that. We would like two David Trimmers on one show. You've got to ask. It'll never happen. Do you think if um, I changed my name to Jennifer Aniston, I might uh, get on the BBC News? <laughs> <laughs> you get appointed to the London Stock Exchange. So, and finally, um, our next story comes from the next web. It was submitted to Fintech Insider News by Amika. Um, this is another brilliant one. So this is a crypto YouTuber hacked out of $2 million during a live stream. So Ian Bellina, a cryptocurrency YouTuber known for his sponsored ICO reviews, was apparently hacked out of $2 million during a live stream session. Bellina was reviewing ICOs on his channel as usual when a viewer suddenly notified him that someone had moved all tokens out of his wallet. Bellina is apparently a name known in the ICO industry. I, I don't know, I'm afraid, but especially as an influencer to casual investors. So he basically goes out there and tells you which ICO you should put your money in. I think the answer is like none, but never mind. Um, <laughs> Bellina, this is brilliant. Bellina believed the attackers were able to access his account via his old college email. <laughs> but since then, he's changed his mind and he says the hackers have gradually been moving his coins to popular exchange desks like Binance and KuCoin. I mean, the question in the office was, who thinks Bellina hacked Bellina? Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah, it's a bizarre one, isn't it, really? The fact that he had two million just disappear as well. I, I was actually, so I was watching YouTube earlier on and I started to get, so I actually got an ICO advert at the beginning of the video. I think I was trying to watch like a Casey Neistat video or something, but there was like a four minute ICO advert for an healthcare thing that was looking at raising like a hundred million or something. Like it's amazing how much of this stuff is just going massively mainstream without any regular input at all so it's uh, you know sad news for this guy I'm sure he'll sort of figure out a way of making uh, making that back in some description but uh, yeah but the fact that I guess YouTube are allowing this type of content to sort of be out there is uh, probably another thing you know yeah it's interesting because a lot of the major platforms have kind of cracked down on this we've seen uh, I think Twitter and Facebook have kind of said we're not allowing these adverts to run but as you said you know you're mentioning an advert but this guy isn't actually an advert he's, he's content so I'll, I'll be honest this, the advert was incredibly well put together as well like I was just I like I watched like the whole three minutes of it it was fascinating no idea what the company was will not be investing definitely not a sort of investment advice i'm giving anybody out there in right now i think that for my opinion here is that some of these icos will end up certified by by some exchanges no because right now it's like everyone is doing icos directly and at some point the exchanges will end up regulating the quality of those icos and certifying which is an ICO that is legal and that is really supported by someone that it's going to be doing something with that money no and a lot of people are going to get into hot water at that point i think as well i was out having uh, drinks in london i don't know two weeks ago somebody would raised 10 million on an ico cannot find a bank account to actually get that out so you know at the moment they've got incredibly fluctuating ether which they can't actually do anything with so it's um bizarre space i'm not sure if i was starting a business right now it'd be how i'd be going about it yeah i mean as as the um temporary host of blockchain insider for last week and next week i feel i should point out that some icos are, are legit like genuinely these are people who are trying to raise money for a legitimate business and they are they have you know legitimate purposes with that money but as we said like this this doesn't give them a good name this kind of thing happening and 
whether it's you know really happened or not is is not really the point it's more that the story is out there and it's made it onto the next web and that's not going to help ICO at the end of the day it's about, <laughs> it's about trust no? so who is the one providing you trust about that ICO where you are investing money no? and there should be someone really providing that and I think that's the major thing isn't it originally you know it was quite a wild west in this instance so there was very little KYC that was being taken so where that money was actually coming from yeah. was very very difficult to trace so you know at least I think people are starting to you know self-regulate a little yeah. bit more on these things to try and you know preempt some of the problems that are going to be coming down the line to go well you know where has this money come from and can you evidence it um so long ways to go on the ico space but um you know hopefully things will start to get a little bit more legitimate that got more serious than i thought it was going to i really hope the next story does not get serious um so this is this is a special mention story because this came up on the bbc and we had already recorded blockchain insider and i was like no it must be talked about um so this is another story from the bbc news but this is about um an iceland bitcoin heist suspect fleeing on the prime minister's plane so basically this is a man suspected of master Masterminding the theft of 600 computers that are being used to mine virtual currencies um, escaped custody in Iceland. But he did so by buying a plane ticket on his own credit card whilst he was in prison and then boarding said plane um, on which the Icelandic Prime Minister was also travelling. Um, apparently he used another man's passport, was eventually identified by surveillance video. By the way, the stolen computers are still missing. How do you how do you make 600 computers disappear? That's pretty impressive. Like they're, they're going to be like, I'm, I'm ex- like carrying like 600 hundred towers out or something it's kind of a bizarre one isn't it i'm just sad that like that it wasn't a more impressive inventive escape to be honest like him actually buying a ticket and getting on a plane is like oh i thought i was expecting something better from this man it does sound like some sort of bizarre prison break episode though doesn't it like i can see this becoming some sort of documentary at some point you know like a some bizarre melodrama thing going on but i was thinking of buying the film rights i don't know <laughs> do, it now. It do it now <laughs> I think that I saw a picture of this farm, and as you say, the computers were so huge, so I don't know how they took these 600 ones. No? Fair play to him. Sometimes if you manage to steal 600 computers you and, you know, achieve it, you probably deserve something, don't you? You deserve so, to get away with yeah, it. Yeah, like, fair play, mate. So on that note, this wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to our guests. Um, where can people find out more about you, Lucy? Um, to our website, yacht.com, or follow us on Twitter at Get Yacht, and I'm at Lucy Wolf on Great. Twitter. Um, and Paul? Well, our website, tsv.co.uk, or you can find myself at, at Paul Navarro in Twitter. Brilliant. And David? David M. Breer on Instagram. Instagram? I know. Ooh. I'm getting all oh, pictures. branching out. I know. As for me, you can still find me on Twitter at Sarah Kashansky. As always, if you'd like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcast at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.